Hey, greetings, and welcome to Categorical Imperatives. Uh, I am your host, Black and Liberal. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Uh, for anyone who may be new to the program, uh, welcome. This is a podcast where we are going to be using legal and moral philosophy to discuss current events as it relates to various aspects of politics and culture. And today's episode, uh, we have another installment uh, in the series I've been doing uh, called Today in Supreme Court History. Uh, I, I haven't been meaning to do these as often uh, as I have, but when I noticed that it was uh, on this day in 1995 uh, that the case of U.S. v. Lopez was argued before the Supreme Court, I just could not pass up uh, doing a video about that. And so that is what we are going to talk about today. We are going to go through U.S. v. Lopez uh, and talk about how it uh, relates to the Necessary and Proper Clause, uh, the Commerce Clause, uh, and what is really at the heart of the case here uh, is identifying limits on federal power. And this is crucial because even though the words of the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clauses have remained constant over the past two centuries, the Supreme Court's interpretation of their reach has not. The Court's interpretation of commerce among the several states has not much changed since the founding. To this day, is still largely confined to trade and transportation of people and things from one state to another, though there is one outlier decision from 1944 uh, that held commerce includes insurance. However, the Court's construction of implied powers uh, reach actively far beyond uh, interstate commerce, and the degree to which they have done this has fluctuated greatly over time. So, uh, let's take a brief look at the history of implied congressional powers. First, in the earliest days of the Republic, President Washington determined that Congress had the implied power to create the first bank of the United States over the objections of James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. Second, during his tenure as Chief Justice, John Marshall continued the broader Hamiltonian reading of implied federal powers in cases such as McCulloch and Gibbons. And in Prigg, the Tawny Court embraced an even broader construction of the Necessary and Proper Clause to find an implied power to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act. And uh, in the Chase Court, in the cases of DeWitt and Hepburn, Chief Justice Chase narrowed the court's approach to Congress's implied power. But then in Knox, following the appointment of new justices by President Grant, the court adopted perhaps its broadest description of the scope of Congress's implied powers. And during the Progressive Era, the court flip-flopped in E.C. Knight and Hammer. The court narrowed Congress's implied powers to regulate local business transactions, but in Champion, it prohibited the sale of lottery tickets, and in Schechter Poultry, it reasserted a limit on Congress's implied powers to invalidate the National Recovery Act. And 
In the New Deal court, we have the case of NLRB and Darby, which both ushered in a radical redefinition of implied federal power by adopting what is known as the substantial effects test. Uh, and this power was then expanded even further by adopting the aggregation principle in Wickard. And the New Deal doctrines governing implied powers continued on the Warren court, and they were used to uphold civil rights, such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in Heart of Atlanta and Katzenbach where the court added a jurisdictional hook to regulate interstate activity uh, that used items that had traveled in interstate commerce. And it would be nearly six decades before the Supreme Court would strike down a law that exceeded congressional power under the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clause. The federal government's winning streak came to an end with United States versus Lopez. So, in 1990, Congress enacted uh, the Gun-Free School Zone Act. Uh, this law made it a federal crime for any individual to knowingly possess a firearm within a thousand feet of a school zone. The law did not report to regulate any commercial activity, and additionally, the government did not need to show that the firearm had traveled in interstate commerce uh, to meet the so-called jurisdictional hook. So in March of 1992, uh, Alfonso Lopez carried a concealed handgun into Edison High School in San Antonio, Texas. Initially, the high school senior had been charged with violating a Texas law uh, that banned the possession of firearms in schools. However, the next day, the state charges were dismissed and federal agents charged Lopez with violating the Gun-Free School Zone Act. He was tried and found guilty. Now, for the next part here, uh, I want to turn it over to a couple of great constitutional law scholars, uh, Josh Blackman and Randy Barnett. An introduction to constitutional law. 100 Supreme Court cases everyone should know by Randy Barnett and Josh Blackman. Number 72, U.S. v. Lopez, 1995. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, however, reversed his conviction. The United States appealed the case to the Supreme Court, but was unable to articulate what limits existed on the scope of Congress's powers. During oral arguments, Justice Ginsburg asked the Solicitor General, What are the limits then? What would be a case that would fall outside? After an uncomfortable pause, he replied, I, I don't know. Justice Scalia then interjected, Don't give away anything here. <laughs> they, 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 they might want to do it next. The inability of the Solicitor General to identify a limiting principle to its theory of congressional power was fatal to the government's argument. All right, and that was uh, clipped from a uh, actually a casebook put out by Blackman uh, and Randy Barnett uh, that comes with a free video uh, catalog like that. Uh, and so I just, I'll be putting a uh, link to that casebook up in, I suppose, the right-hand corner of the video. I'll put a card there where you can go read about it, uh, just because they, uh, it's a phenomenal book. This is one that I, I, I go to for reference all the time. Uh, and it, it was really written to uh, do the same thing that I have been trying to do here uh, with this show, uh, and that is to... Uh, explain uh, things like constitutional law, and for me, just legal theory in general, uh, but to 
explain it in a way uh, that is easily digestible by lawyers and non-lawyers alike. And that is precisely what this book does, the 100 uh, foundational Supreme Court cases in con law. Uh, so yeah, anyways, I would just, I would, I would recommend people go check out the book. Uh, I guess them in both. They are fantastic scholars. Uh, so anyways, moving on. Now, uh, when it, the case was before the Supreme Court, uh, the rather absurd argument the government initially made to defend the constitutionality of the Gun-Free School Zone Act uh, under the Commerce Clause uh, was that the presence of firearms within a school would be seen as dangerous. This would result in students being scared and disturbed. Uh, this would result in an inhibition of their ability to learn. And this, in turn, would lead to a weaker national economy since education is clearly a crucial element of the nation's financial health. And uh, hopefully with that there, you can uh, appreciate even more uh, how uh, fantastic Scalia's response was there. Um, you don't have to, to have to like Scalia. I know a lot of people don't, uh, you, you know, but I'm just, uh, whether or not you like him, he really uh, got to the heart of the problem here. When you look at that string of, of you know, logical steps you need to take, uh, I mean, at that point, you can really uh, find any reason to call anything commerce at all. So, in the case, uh, the justices split five to four uh, and held that the gun-free school zone uh, exceeded Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. And Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, wrote the majority opinion in which he said, we start with first principles. He explained that the Constitution creates a federal government of enumerated powers. They then go on to quote James Madison in Federalist 45, and where he says, uh, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal governments are few and defined. Those which are to remain in state governments are numerous and indefinite. And Chief Justice Rehnquist also added, this constitutionally mandated division of authority was adopted by the framers to ensure the protection of our fundamental liberties. And the court uh, acknowledged that in Jones, in Laughlin, Steele, Darby, and Wickard, all those cases had uh, ushered in an era of Commerce Clause jurisprudence that greatly expanded the previously defined authority of Congress under this clause. And yet, Chief Justice Rehnquist observed that even these modern era precedents, which have expanded congressional power under the Commerce Clause, uh, confirm this power is subject to outer limits. The court then identified three broad categories of activity uh, that Congress may use to help regulate under the Commerce Clause. First, Congress may regulate the use of channels of interstate commerce. Uh, in Darby and Heart of Atlanta, for example, the court upheld Congress's authority to keep the channels of interstate commerce free from immoral and injurious use. In such cases, Congress can regulate local activities that block the flow of interstate commerce. Second, Congress is empowered to uh, regulate and protect the instrumentalities of interstate commerce or persons or things in interstate commerce, even though the threat may only come from intrastate activities. Uh, for example, 
Congress could protect a port or a railroad from foreign terrorist attacks, even though these hubs are entirely intrastate. And third, Congress had the authority to regulate those intrastate activities that had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And Darby and Wickard established the substantial effect test. Those decisions found that Congress could regulate such interstate activity uh, as a necessary and proper clause or regulating interstate commerce. And if you're not familiar, uh, Wickard v. Filburn is one of the most insane uh, cases ever, in my opinion. Um, what this was, was back during the uh, New Deal, uh, there is a piece of legislation that was limiting how much wheat farmers could uh, grow. Uh, and uh, a farmer named uh, Filburn, or excuse me, named Wickard, was sued by another farmer named Filburn uh, because Wickard had been uh, growing more wheat than what had been allowed under this law. Uh, but the law was justified under the Commerce Clause. Uh, and so Wickard made the case that this extra grain that I have is not for commerce. I'm growing this for to feed my livestock and to feed uh, my family. So not only is this not com interstate commerce, it's not commerce at all. Uh, this is my wheat that, you know, I'm going to personally use. And the government came back and said, well, um, you know, if you're growing wheat that you're going to use for yourself, that means that uh, you, you aren't getting the wheat from somewhere else. And because you're not engaging in that interstate commerce, uh, you are engaging in interstate commerce because your decision is affecting how much wheat would be traveling from you to another uh, person or vice versa. It's, it's an insane case. It's, in, just, it's totally absurd. Uh, and so the court is saying that even that case uh, had a logic to it uh, that uh, Lopez does not. So Lopez attempted to synthesize nearly a century of precedent uh, into these three categories here. And Chief Justice Rehnquist explained that the government could only defend the Gun-Free School Zones Act under the third category. Uh, he then added something new to the doctrine, and that was the outer limit of a substantial effect test. Congress could only regulate intrastate activity that substantially affected interstate commerce if the intrastate activity is economic in nature. And so even uh, Wickard, as I kind of just explained, uh, which is perhaps the most far-reaching example of Commerce Clause authority over interstate activity involved economic activity in a way uh, that possession of a gun in a gun-free school zone does not. So the Gun-Free School Zone Act, he concluded, has nothing to do with commerce or any sort of economic enterprise, however broadly one might want to define those terms. Nor does the federal law have an essential part of a larger regulation of economic activity in which the regulatory scheme could be undercut unless the intrastate activity were regulated. And it was for this reason that the act could not be sustained under our cases 
upholding regulations of intrastate commerce activities, which viewed in the aggregate substantially affect interstate commerce. And as I previously explained, the substantial effects test was based on the necessary and proper clause. And Lopez held that this substantial effect test could only be used to uphold regulations of intrastate economic activity. This case limited the scope of Congress's powers under the Necessary and Proper Clause. So why did Lopez limit the substantial effect test to interstate economic activity? I would say perhaps uh, because such local economic activity like manufacturing and agriculture will likely be closely related to the regulation of interstate commerce. Conversely, local non-economic activity is likely to be quite remote from interstate commerce, and the distinction between economic and non-economic activity uh, allows the court to separate what is national and what is local. And the limiting principle uh, prevents Congress from creating a completely centralized government uh, as established under the case uh, NLRB of Jones and Laughlin Steel from 1937. And Justice Kennedy uh, wrote a concurring opinion, which Justice O'Connor joined. Uh, they said, were the federal government to take over the regulation of entire areas of traditional state concern, areas having nothing to do with the regulation of commercial activities, the boundaries between the spheres of federal and state authority would blur and political responsibility would become illusory. And Justice Thomas also wrote a separate concurring opinion in which he said, in a future case, the court ought to temper its Commerce Clause jurisprudence in a manner that both makes sense of our more recent case law and is more faithful to the original understanding of the clause. Uh, and Justice Thomas advocating the abolishment of the substantial effects test altogether. And there were three dissents filed in the case. And the uh, first one was Justice Stevens, who wrote that whether or not the national interest in eliminating that market for guns in schools uh, would have justified federal legislation in 1789, it surely does today. Justice Souter's dissent extolled that the practice of deferring to rationally based legislative judgment uh, as a paradigm of judicial restraint. And Justice Breyer's dissent found that the Gun-Free School Zone Act falls well within the scope of the Commerce Clause as this court has understood that power over the last half century. Now, in September of 1995, six months before Lopez was decided, Congress did enact a new version of the Gun-Free School Zones Act that did include a jurisdictional hook. So now to be convicted of violating the law, the government has to prove that the firearm in question has moved in or otherwise affected interstate commerce. Uh, thusly, as amended, this law remains in force. Nevertheless, Lopez sent a major shockwave uh, through the legal academy. Uh, many law professors question whether the court intended to draw uh, a bright line between economic and non-economic activity. Also, Congress, uh, they had... Uh, sort of come to believe had been uh, complacent since the statute in question lacked factual findings to connect the possession of a gun to interstate commerce. 
had Congress uh, included such a jurisdictional hook, uh, perhaps the court would have upheld the law. So did Lopez represent a step towards repudiating a century of Commerce Clause precedent, or did the court merely put a halt to further expansion on federal power? Uh, the court would uh, answer these questions in the cases of United States versus Morrison and Gonzalez v. Raich, but those are cases to be discussed another day. Well, uh, I do hope you enjoyed this, and uh, let me know what you think down in the comments. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts uh, on the case. Do you agree with the ruling? Do you not agree? Uh, I mean, is there anything you like about it? Or just uh, If there's anything like that, uh, go ahead and leave a comment. Uh, I would love to hear what you guys think uh, about the content itself, but I mean also just about uh, what I had to say here. I'd, I'd love some feedback. Uh, and so also I would ask that uh, because I'm not putting videos out on a regular schedule as I do eventually want to do, I ask people to subscribe to the channel to make sure uh, that when I do put new videos out that you are aware of it. And finally, uh, I always ask that if you uh, enjoyed this particular episode, uh, please uh, take a minute to pass it along to someone else you know who you think might also enjoy uh hearing this episode if you would do that for me uh i would certainly be very grateful and so uh until next time this has been Lockheed and liberal uh talking about usv lopez here on categorical imperatives and as always de lenda s cartago